the Triathlon Show 291. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Björn Gesman. Björn is a Hamburg-based uh, triathlon and endurance sports coach and with a background from the German Sport University in Cologne. He coaches world-class athletes such as Patrick Lange and Katrina Matthews, to name just a couple. And he'll describe more of his background when we get into the interview, so I will save that for later. But before we get into that, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration creates electrolytes that you can match to your individual sweat sodium concentration. You can do that by going to precisionhydration.com and clicking the free hydration plan tab. And that is a simple questionnaire where you'll answer a few questions qualitatively. And Precision Hydration has created uh, a database which uh, allows them to get a really good estimate of how much sodium you lose in your sweat just based on how you answer those questions. And if you want to take it a step further, do scroll down to the bottom of the homepage on Precision Hydration. And there you'll find a link to book a free video consultation of 20 minutes to discuss the results of your online sweat test and as well as your general hydration strategy and questions you might have for the experts in the precision hydration team so take advantage of that great opportunity Uh, do tell them that you came from that triathlon show and of course we have a discount code if you want to buy precision hydration electrolytes the code is that triathlon show one five and it will give you 15 percent off your order and thank you to roca Roka are the world leading manufacturers of wetsuits, dry suits, swim skins, goggles, high performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. Whether you're looking to go faster in the open water, get more performance and aerodynamics out of your tri suit, or find a perfect pair of eyeglasses that combines function, comfort, and design, Roka have an option for you based on exceptional R&D and attention to every single detail in their product development and design. I use uh, a ton of Roka products from the Maverick X2 wetsuit to the Rory prescription glasses. And uh, I can honestly say that I think all of them are really, really amazing products. I I really like them all very, very much. You can get 20% off your entire Roka order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. And a quick request that if you are a long-time listener and haven't yet rated and reviewed the podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcasts, please do that. It only takes a couple of minutes, but it really helps out because the podcast really needs to keep growing to be sustainable. So uh, so it's important to help new people find the podcast and ratings and reviews really help with that. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with coach Bjorn Gesman. Today's guest on that triathlon show is uh, Björn Gesman. Uh, Björn, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Oh, Michael, fine. Uh, I'm I'm pretty fine. How are you? I'm good as well. Thank you very much. Uh, can you just start by uh, introducing yourself to the listeners and telling us more about uh, yourself and your background? Uh, thanks at uh, first for having me. Um, pretty excited to to be honest. Have the first podcast in English, so I hope uh, that I can handle it. And it's pretty interesting that I do not have to spell my name. So in international triathlon business, if I say that my name is Björn, <laughs> uh, it's pretty easy to tell it to a Swedish-speaking Finnish guy um, instead of talking to like people from UK or wherever or USA, uh, what I learned two weeks ago, that it's kind of difficult to spell that. So yeah, thanks for having me. Um, 
I'm uh, yeah. I, I try my very best to introduce myself. Um, so I more or less did like cycling and more cycling than triathlon as a child. Um, then went to the German Sports University in Cologne to study sports science. Um, and I made my bachelor and master degree in sports science at the sports university. And it was pretty clear concerning the profession later that it um, needs to have to do with whether team sports or endurance sports. So maybe soccer, handball, whatever. That's what I played as a child, as I lived in a pretty small village where we did, did not have some kind of triathlon club or cycling club or whatever. And um, then I started working in cycling and triathlon more as a, I would say, like as an internship, as a trainee in in about 2008, started doing performance diagnostics, um, more or less bike fittings, and then had my first athletes coached by myself in about like 2009, 2010, I would say. Um, then I finished university in 2012 and was yeah more or less working like two years uh, before as a professional, oh, not like professional coach, but as a coach. Um, and I started coaching cyclists and triathletes more on the age group level and especially more cycling at the beginning. So I had a lot of um, clients or athletes participating, whether in semi-professional uh, cycling or in all the stuff concerning ultra-endurance cycling. So I had a lot to do concerning race across America and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, then, uh, I, since 2015, I have my own business concerning triathlon coaching and, uh, cycling coaching and all the stuff that has to do with performance testing and bike fittings and so on. So the company's name is high size and we are placed at three different places in, in Germany. So in Hamburg, Cologne and Munich. And um, we are a team of like 15 sports scientists, um, more or less like five, five sports scientists per place. And our main profession is to, yeah, like coaching of triathletes and cyclists, a little bit runners, um, doing bike fittings, doing aerodynamic testings, doing performance diagnostics and all this stuff which is more or less science-based uh, and which you can do to, to make the athletes faster. And um, then I had all around like more or less always like yeah, 20, 30 age group athletes. Then I um, started doing professional athletes at about 2017, 2018. And then I decided on my own that I would just like to do the professional athletes and then just a handful. So that's the part I still do until today that I got the coaching business on the one side and have my professional athletes on the other side. And it's always just about like more or less like five to six athletes because yeah, main goal is always to coach everybody in the way you want to coach them and therefore it depends on the quantity of athletes you have um if you want to do it a hundred percent i would say and um yeah that's where we stand today more or less that's a great introduction can you just uh, tell the listeners a few of the names of the professionals you coach because you have some pretty big names on your on your roster um 
Um, so the first professional athlete, so real professional athlete was Daniela Bleimel in 2018. Um, and we won the challenge in Roth, um, in a pretty spectacular finish. Um, maybe someone remembers the finish against Lucy Charles, where she beat her about like eight seconds or seven seconds or nine seconds. I'm not sure. Um, and then I started working with, uh, Boris Stein back in, what was it? Like 17, 18. I'm, Honestly, I'm losing the countings of the years due to COVID. I do not remember whether we have like 2020 or 2021 because I'm missing the markers. Like uh, that main competition in 2020 was when I supported whoever or coached whoever. So Boris Stein was the next one. And then I started working with Patrick Lange in after his Kona finish in 19 or not finish in 19, uh, let's say. So since one and a half years. And, um, since more or less half a year, I'm coaching Cat Matthews from, from UK. And yeah, I mean, these are the main, uh, names on the list, I would say. Great. And, uh, let's, uh, go into coaching and, uh, discuss that a bit. So, so if you can just give an overview of your coaching and training philosophy, uh, well, how, what would you do, what you, what would you describe it like? Yeah, it's a good question because, um, to be honest, I never really uh, made my own presentation about my coaching business and what I am doing. So, um, it's some kind of making the experience that on the one hand, scientific training is pretty important for me as a sports scientist. So that's why I studied five years of sports science at the German sports university because, um, I liked or I still like the scientific part about training being proved by whatever metabolic testing for example you can have or position adaptations being proved by the bike fitting um, baseline measurements and then whatever you have when it comes to measuring techniques in bike fitting whether it's like pressure mapping or video analysis and so on and so on so therefore the the scientific part was pretty important and i when i studied it at the university it was not really focused on endurance sports, but focused about the basic scientifics like physiology, biomechanics, anatomy, and so on and so on. And my purpose um, studying sports science um, was always to find a solution to get the transfer into practical training. So not only knowing about the scientific basics, but also make your own experience how to bring the science into the sports practice. And that's why I worked as a coach starting in what I said, like 2010 ago, um, from that point on. And it was quite interesting. And that's what I still like about the whole coaching part to have an idea for the athlete, which is based on his goals, his physiological profile, his by now psychological profile, uh, his circumstances when it comes to training and then to have your own idea and yeah i mean maybe at least make your own plan but i think that writing a training plan is one of the smallest uh, jobs you do as a coach um and then to support the athlete on his way to his goal and to have several parts in between where you can do some safety checks if you are on a good way, whether it's a competition, a performance diagnostics where you can, whatever, check if the VO2 max after three months of training is uh, uh, arise by like 10% or whatever your goal is. And um, then I had that part first doing 
training a lot of age group athletes, which is what I had to learn completely different from coaching professional athletes as you definitely have a higher distance in between you as a coach and the age group athlete. Cause I mean, yeah, we know it that the coaching business, uh, consists of that you have to have like whatever 20, 30 athletes. Otherwise it wouldn't make sense on a monetary part. And therefore the distance in between you as the coach and the age, age group athlete is, I would say kind of normal. And then I started working with professional athletes, which means not having contact like once a week, but once a day, which also means going into training camps, which also means supporting the races, which also means being way more personal than you would be maybe with an age group athlete due to um, the whole holistically part of coaching that it also um, is about personal belongings and so on and so on. And then I realized in about like 2019 that science-based training and all the physical stuff, let's summarize it, um, is maybe not enough to be a good coach. So it's good to study sports science to be a good sports scientist, but a good sports scientist is not equal to to a good coach. And um, I was... To be honest, I thought that my soft skills and all my human intellect is, is, is good enough to support some athletes. And I made the experience about more or less like 10 years. But then I realized that in professional sports, I have to have some more, let's say, tools to coach the athlete, especially on the mental or psychological part. And that's why I uh, did another education being a, a mental coach since like a year, more or less. And that really helped a lot at first to get to know myself better than before and to realize what kind of, of person I am and therefore what kind of coach I am. And also, um, to get way more tools into the coaching process when it comes to how the situation and, and, and in which situation it is necessary to use this tool and that tool and this tool to um, do whatever you want with your athlete, whether it comes to bringing more confidence into the race preparation, bringing, uh, you know, how the business works more or less. Um, so it's about coach the athlete in a good way and find solutions for different situations, especially on the psychological side also. And that really helped me a lot. So I would say that philosophy is about having the physical part and the psychological part and then it's always scientific based so it's always like a summary of all of it and also depending on the athlete so sometimes it's more necessary to be the scientific coach uh, depending on your athlete or the situation and sometimes it's more important to be like the let's say mental coach friend supporter whatever and having the sports scientist a little bit more in the back for example and yeah, that's what I would try to describe about the uh, about the philosophy. Yeah, I like that answer a lot. Uh, with the mental part, can you give perhaps one example of a tool or a strategy that you have uh, that you have used successfully from from that toolbox? Just to to give an example. 
So at first, it's mandatory to do a psychological test when we start the coaching. So that's what I um, do with every athlete to get a better overview about his personal psychological profile. And if I have that profile, I, I'm, I'm not doing it at, on first hand because at first, I really like a lot to have a talk to the athlete. So getting to know him better personally, maybe at first by phone when it comes to to the distance due to, yeah, I mean, it's a global sport. So my athletes are based in Austria, UK and Germany. Um, but then after some talkings and after the first impression you have from your athlete to do the psychological test, and that test tells you more about whether your athlete is more structured or not or has a big or let's say more or less personal belongings a lot or maybe less and is more objective or more on the personal side when it comes to acting whether it's in personal belongings or in a race for example depending on which situation you have and if you know that profile it's always i mean the solution for the coaching process is as individual as the training for the physiological profile also is so therefore it depends in the situation let's take a race situation and if you do the race tactics you sometimes have the athlete where you can say be safe this is your power output you should not overdue for let's say If that is your threshold, you know that you can do it for like six minutes. If you have to go for six minutes, go ahead. If it's more like six minutes, maybe drop that group and concentrate yourself on getting into the next group or whatever. Um, and giving him more like a structured plan where he knows about pace and running, power output in cycling, nutrition stuff, and so on. Um, on the other hand, you have athletes which are more on the personal part where it comes in race tactic where it's important not to talk about data or numbers, but to give him the opportunity to go like, go for 50Ks full gas on the bike and see how it goes. And then you can start having a structured plan. But at first, have fun. So, and have fun destroying other groups. Uh, getting back to group uh, number one after a bad fin uh, swim or whatever situation you have in race tactics. And you do not only have this situation with race tactics, but also in personal life, whether it comes to whatever you have um, to the normal relationships you have in your private life or relationships to your coach, um, the talkings you have with him. And then it always comes to, I mean, the wordings you use the situations you describe, then it comes to strategies like visualization of different situations in training, in the race, what you want to achieve, goal settings, and so on. All that stuff depends on your psychological profile and the way you want to bring that idea to your athletes. So that's more or less the, the plan I use for them. Yeah, no, that that is that is great. That that is really good. And 
It, this reminds me of a conversation, an interesting conversation I had a, a while ago with somebody. And I think you are somebody who might be in a good position to uh, well give your opinion on it. And that is, do you think that on average, there is a difference uh, between in on the mental side, on the psychological side between professional athletes and, and amateur athletes? You mean from the mental setting? yeah yeah it it could be like i mean i don't want to talk about mental strength here necessarily but whether they are have a different profile or like some some generalities if you look at the population yeah, yeah, level yeah. yeah i know what you mean because we we discussed that when i did my education about the mental coach part i was the only um coach let's say who was working in endurance sports the other coaches there were like a group of 10 people doing that that education then and they came from totally different um backgrounds so some of them were psychological students and wanted to do the mental coach uh, education others were coachings in whatever tennis or i don't know and we discussed whether at first you have to have some parts in your psychological profile which bring you to triathlon and not to for example like team sports or whatever which definitely is a yes i would say that triathletes are way more structured normally than a team player is so just average so not in mm, yeah uh, i w wouldn't say that overall but if you take the average i would bet that you have to be a little bit more structured to bring like 35 hours of training per week into your normal rhythm of a week and um But when it comes to professional athletes and age group athletes, to be honest, I'm not sure. So I wouldn't say that a professional athlete always has the habit to be very with or uh, who has a very high mental strength, for example. You'll also find professional athletes who don't have that or who have to get that potential to being to be strange in your in your mental habits for example and on the other side i mean if you take the age group athletes by now it's not like a group of people just having fun out there but also a group of people who are uh, very consistent in training who bring in a lot of knowledge which they read on different whatever newspapers maybe slightly scientific uh, literature or whatever And have way more knowledge, I would say, than a normal amateur athlete in soccer, for example. And therefore, I would say there's a big difference or there's a difference in average between triathlon and, for example, team sports. But I would not say that there is definitely a difference between professional triathletes and age group triathletes. Because I think you'll also find a lot of very mentally strength age group athletes out there if you have to perform on an ironman distance you have to have some kind of mental strength otherwise i think it would work out to um bring that one home as you always in every competition of that duration you have like phases where it's not running perfect and you're not into the flow and you're struggling with your mental performance at that moment maybe so therefore a little bit of mental strength is i would say like essential for a even for an age group triathlete right yeah that makes sense uh, now uh, let's uh, go a bit deeper into each of the disciplines of triathlon and, and discuss your views uh, around training for each of them so so perhaps if you can just uh, give 
a couple of of uh, pieces of advice for what you think are important uh, with the training in each disciplines and and maybe some practical tips so if we start with swim training what what are some cornerstones of that for you um i think that uh when it comes to swim training i would say that the most important key is consistency in training so if you want to have the feeling of water and if you want to feel good in the water then as a professional triathlete you have to train minimum like four times a week in average throughout the the year excluding off season so five times is better if six times is necessary depends on your capability of of, of swimming i would say And if you have that consistency, I would say that, like, let me put it in numbers more or less, like 70 to 80% of your swim training is fine when you just have the consistency of swimming, like what you have, like 20Ks per week, for example. Um, if you have that kind of kilometers in, in, in the back, then I would recommend to not do too much technique training so that's especially what i see in age group athletes that they know a lot of technique drills way more than i could ever know um but if you just do them on your own without the supervision of a coach standing on the side um then i'm not sure if you're doing it right and sometimes due to all that technique stuff in my opinion the athletes lose a little bit of overview about also physiology in swimming. So for sure, the technical part in swimming is way more important than it could be in any other discipline due to uh, density of water, which is like way higher than, for example, of air. Therefore, uh, you do not really have to care about aerodynamics and running for sure, but you have to care about technique and, and, and the density of water or hydrodynamics in, in swimming. And therefore, it is important, but I think sometimes the athletes lose the focus on also physiological training, which means um, find the differentiation between the intensities. Go for more kilometers, more duration with less intensity, but also have parts where you have like high intensity um, of more than like 20 seconds. So not only like 15 meters, but also like 50 meters or 100 meters or 200 meters, maybe 400 meters of higher intensity. And what is important, in my opinion, to find a differentiation in between. So if you look at, at the swimmers in the pool, then sometimes warm up is way more intensive than it should be when it comes to just slightly endurance warm up. So um, just, I mean, if you have the chance as a coach to measure lactate values after the warm up, then you're going to be shocked more or less to see that sometimes warm up, um, is at whatever four, five, six millimole, uh, per liter of lactate, um, which you would never ever do in running or cycling, never ever. So, um, therefore I would say find a differentiation in between the intensities. If it's about high duration, And less intensity, do it with less intensity and not only with like some kind of mid-intensity somewhere between endurance training zones and more or less high-intensive training zones. Do not do too much technique drills and always look on the efficiency for your workout. I mean, you have an hour of time, maybe like one and a half hours, 
And if you swim like 2,500 meters in one and a half hours, it's not enough. So, I mean, that's not really efficient to stop after every technique drill, have a talk on the site, look on the paper again, have some whatever, drink some water. I mean, it's good to have that, but always keep in mind that you have to get the job done in training and you have to do like, I mean, if we talk about professional athletes, more or less like 4Ks per hour should be something or like doesn't have to be an hour, but like an hour and 10 minutes um, should be something you have to get done due to that the kilometers count. It's more or less the same principle than in running. I mean, you can be a, a track and field athlete and do training of an hour and have like 500 meters in your, in your, in your training session for an hour. That makes sense for sprinters or 200 meter runners or 400 meter runners, but not for, for, for triathletes when it comes to running. So therefore I would say swim kilometers count, same as running kilometers count. Um, and then it depends on the quality. So technique, yes, but not too much. Intensities, yes, but differentiated. Um, in between lower training uh, intensities, mid higher training intensities, and so on. Mm. Uh, that's a great overview. If you have a professional athlete that's swimming, let's say five times per week, uh, would they do? How often would they do a proper kind of intense set? Would it be maybe a couple of times per week, or uh, and the rest would be more endurance focused? Or how would you uh, distribute that? So. Let's take into account that the that the other uh, disciplines are, let's say, average. So I'm always a big fan to have the overview when it comes to stress management and so on, um, compared in between the dis uh, disciplines of swimming, cycling, and running, and also strength and conditioning, athletic training, whatever you have. Um, therefore, if the other part of running and cycling has not really a main focus uh, on its disciplines, but it's just more like average, I would say that it's not a big problem to have one or two workouts per week, which have the label of intensity, but I'm, and that's, that will be the same principle also for cycling and running. I'm not a big fan of high intensity. For sure, in swimming, intensity means mostly way more intensity than you have in cycling and running. But if I talk about one or two sessions being intensive, that would normally mean like that it doesn't have to be like high intensive training, but like, let's say, whatever, five times 400 meters threshold training, for example. And then you can do some critical swim speed tests before to know where your 400 meters time is. And you take like, whatever, 10% off to have your threshold. And then do, you do it like five times or whatever. And therefore, I would say like one to, let's say three times, depending on the other sessions. But you should also have like one or two sessions, which really are... uh uh which really consists of a bit more kilometers in duration and have like let's say four to five k's um uh, within the workout and and then i mean again it's about the the quality you do not have to have too much technique drills if there's not a coach at the site who's doing some kind of corrective job for you and telling you about the times or telling you about your technique and so on so therefore i would also depend that so the program of the training, not only about um, intensity, yes or no, or duration, yes or no, but also about if you have a coach on your side who is who's helping you out, who is doing the correction and so on and so on. Hmm. 
if you're an age grouper and you uh, can swim three times per week for example uh, what would you say that that they should do with those three times per week get yourself a good swim group <laughs> yeah and yeah that's what i really um so when it comes to swimming i mean it's some kind of monotonous sport uh, it's not like going out cycling seeing a great landscape uh, or whatever um so therefore i would recommend to uh, think about the opportunity to get some kind of swim group and if you have that swim group for at least one or two times per week then again consistency is safe so if you go to that swim group which makes it way easier to motivate yourself to go swimming if you know that your swim group is swimming at like let's say 6 p.m on tuesday and thursday then you can be sure that you're going to make it to swim training otherwise you have to have a lot of internal motivation uh, or intrinsic motivation to go swimming alone on your own stopping your times on your own deciding maybe on your own i mean for sure your coach can give you some technique drills but you can never supervise if your athlete really is doing it and when it comes to motivation he has to do it all on his own so no chance um to have some kind of corrections or whatever so therefore i would highly recommend to get a swim group and you do not have to care if it's a group of triathletes or swimmers it's just about that the performance level should be some kind of same to your own so you shouldn't be always the last one finishing the drills for sure but if you have that and you can do technique drills in a group with a coach on the side like two times a week that would be a great solution and then you can have the other session from the from the three ones to do your own training maybe less intensity as group workouts are mostly a little bit more intensive which makes sense due to motivation yourself or motivate yourself to to higher intensity is easier to do it in group than than on your own and then to have the third session like a session with more duration maybe on the weekend maybe you can do like open water swimming on your own for example which is very important in my opinion to get the transfer from pool to open water um swimming in wetsuit and not only in normal normal swim shorts or whatever and that would be your third uh, session and therefore otherwise if you have to do it on your own i would say uh, three sessions should be one intensive one one more or less depending mid-intensity depending on what other stuff you do in cycling and running and then one workout which is more based on on, on a higher duration great uh, and uh, let's move on to bike training then if you can give a similar description of, of what you believe are the important uh, pillars of bike training um i'm a big fan of all that stuff which is like power meters and so on and so on because cycling is more or less the only discipline overall in whether it comes to endurance sports or or whatever sport you have where it is possible to directly measure your performance output so you do not have that in swimming uh, in running we have opportunities where power output is calculated by now but not measured that's a big difference and therefore i'm a big fan of a power meter and 
what you have to have, in my opinion, is that you know more or less perfectly how to use your power meter for physiological training as it gives you the opportunity to really train 100% efficient. On the other hand, especially when it comes to triathlon, it's very important to have some kind of cycling skills as the time you gain when it comes to perfect aerodynamic setup is nothing against the time you lose when you cannot do the corner correctly or when you are not able to accelerate in a in a solid way or whatever you have in a in a in a race for example therefore i would find maybe a solution where you have let's say physiological training same procedure with indoor training. I mean, it's a great opportunity to train indoor and all that stuff when it comes to Zwift and so on is something which is a big benefit you have in triathlon. But on the other hand, you shouldn't lose your cycling skills. Therefore, there has to be a workout where you get up on your road bike or also maybe on your mountain bike, your gravel bike, whatever you can have, and maybe have a workout where you ride in the group, where you have intensities which are not 100% planned, but where you just have a group of people where you go out for three hours and, yeah, you just see how it goes. Sometimes it's way more intensive than you expected. Sometimes it has to be of low intensity, but it's cooler to stay in a group and do like five hours or four hours of workout and so on. Take Patrick as an example um, one of the first uh, things I did when he moved to Salzburg in Austria, I know some some cyclists living in Salzburg, like Gregor Mühlberger, who was riding for Bora Hans Grohe and is now riding for Movie Star. And he has a bunch of cyclists living around the area of Salzburg. And the first thing we did was to connect him just to see how a real cyclist, so a pro cyclist with a, a lot of talent, is sitting on his bike doing the corners and so on and is working with his with his bike and that helped a lot when it comes to technique and so on so therefore power meter is great physiological training indoor training whatever you can have all that stuff really really great but do not lose your cycling skills or if you do not have them as you are a rookie for example no problem then try to get them with some sort of yeah, like like I said, whether you take your TT bike or road bike or gravel bike doesn't matter, but go out on your uh, find a a cool training route where it goes uphill and downhill. And if you can't keep your training zones while going downhill, then don't hesitate with that. Just try to make the best out of the corners, or try to find a good solution where you can pace your power output. Also, when there's a slightly decline, for example, which I hear very often that uh, that it's not possible to have the ergometer modus outside. So, and that's what I say that therefore you have like brakes and shifters. That's what you have to use outside to uh, still ride in endurance training zones, um, even if it's slightly uphill or whatever, and that you can still ride a threshold interval also when it not goes uphill. And you can also... Uh, write it in the flat parts, for example. And that's what you have to learn, whether it comes to shifting a technique, corners, braking, and so on and so on. So all that stuff which belongs to cycling skills. 
Yeah, that, that's that's a really good point, and and I think it's probably a first on this podcast that we really heard it discussed uh, in in such detail with the importance of the cycling skills for triathletes. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's important that you bring it up when it comes to the uh, the physiological side that you mentioned there at the start with uh, the importance of being specific to your own physiology. Uh, can you describe that a little bit more? What sort of testing would you like to do with your athletes and, and how does that then determine what specific kind of training they would be doing? As, let's get a little bit into physiolo physiology at that point. Um, cycling is a very easy discipline to say that and you see me smiling. Um, so it's meant a little bit ironical, but on the physiological side, it's pretty easy. I mean, there are two physiological parameters that count when it comes to cycling uh, that's on the one hand your anaerobic metabolism which is uh, the one that decides about how much lactate production you have whether it comes to training or racing let's say at different intensities and on the other hand it's your aerobic metabolism which is important for getting rid of lactate but also to produce power out of um all that stuff which belongs to oxygen uptake. So if you take the normal possibilities to generate power output, then you have like three different options. On the one hand, you have like uh, anaerobic and alactic uh, um, uh, metabolism, which is not important for triathlon as triathlon always has to do with a duration longer than a 100-meter sprint, for example. So therefore, you can get rid of that one. And on the other hand, you just have these two ways of, of um, yeah, let's say producing energy or power output. So anaerobic and aerobic. And if you take into account that let's take the FTP or the anaerobic threshold, which is more or less the most important parameter which describes your performance or your level of performance, And your anaerobic threshold, if you take that physiologically, is uh, the highest power output you can have where your metabolism of lactate production and elimination is still leveling. So production is as high as elimination is. So therefore, your lactate value you have when you would take blood from your earlobe would be stable at that power output for... Um, yeah, for some time, let's say. So not for like three hours for sure, but as the FTP, let's take that one, is about an hour. Um, and therefore, the lactate value should be more or less stable, let's say, to make it easy. And when it comes to anaerobic and aerobic, I mean, to lactate production and lactate elimination, the principle for triathlon is pretty easy. You don't want to have anaerobic metabolism high as anaerobic metabolism means that you produce lactate which means that you have to put carbohydrates in there and as carbohydrates are your main fuel for that performance and that one which is highly limited as your uh, storages your personal storages in your body are not pretty high especially compared to your fat storages um, you have to have that one as low as possible When it comes to aerobic metabolism, principle is 180 degrees around. So the higher your VO2 max, which is the marker for aerobic metabolism, the higher your VO2 max is, the more power output you can produce depending on your oxygen uptake. So therefore, 
best combination would be to have low lactate production rate or a low lactate production rate and a very high VO2 max. And then it's kind of easy. You just have to uh, see or check the physiological profile of your athlete and see whether he has a low, mid, or high lactate production rate. Same procedure for the VO2 max, whether it is low, mid, or high, or something in between. And then you can decide, depending on the goals the athlete has and the time you have for training, as both um, metabolisms need some different time to adapt, um, which parameter you want to have first, if you want to have both parallel uh, getting trained or whatever, depending on, yeah, like where you want to have these parameters for the next competition and so on and so on. And, or especially when it comes to coaching, not only from October to main competition in June, but also when it comes to coaching your athlete two years, three years, four years in a row and to make a plan where you want to have your athlete. And if, your athlete has the potential to adapt to wherever you want to have him. So is it possible that your athlete can have a very, very low anaerobic metabolism? And is it possible that he achieves uh, values of like, let's say, 80 milliliters or more uh, when it comes to VO2 max values? Yeah, and then I mean cycling is easy. Like I said, um, then you just have to decide um, which sort of training you put into depending on the individual physiological profile. And um, especially in triathlon, it's pretty easy as the, and for sure also in professional triathlon, but also on the age group level, that a high amount of training hours per week means that you normally have a pretty low rate of lactate production. So therefore, normally, you can say that that one is already okay, maybe already good, maybe already perfect. And depending on that one, you can decide to uh, how much input you want to have to hire your VO2 max. And then you can decide... Do you try to hire the VO2 max with like more duration training? Is it like, do you want to bring in threshold training when it comes to intensities? Or do you need some high intensity training uh, because maybe we have an age group athlete who is only able to have like, let's say, six hours of bike training per week and then just low intensity, high duration training is not enough to make him, to bring him uh, to a different or to a higher performance level. So therefore, I would say highly dependent on physiological profile. And then it's just about how you get the transfer into training, how many hours you have, um, and what about the the overall training compared to the other disciplines. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a great overview. And I was going to ask you whether you, in pros in particular, whether you see that, uh, it's more normal to to see that well the, the vo2 max is the one you want to work on or the vla max it sounds a bit like at least if you're talking about pros that have been doing triathlon consistently for some time that it's maybe the vo2 max because the vla max is quite often already at least okay yeah 100 percent. i mean if you are a professional triathlete then you are doing that sport for at least minimum i would say like five six years if if not then you have had a different 
profession before as you were whatever a marathon runner a pro cyclist or a pro swimmer or whatever so all that comes together with a lot of hours of training and a lot of hours of training always means that your body is kind of clever to adapt that he knows that if he has to train for 20 25 30 hours per week and he has two possible energy sources and the one are carbohydrates which are highly limited and the other ones are your fat stores then even the body which is normally not really clever let's say so if you give him a jail for example he takes the jail first instead of taking the fat stores so not really clever to be honest um, but in that case he learns how to deal with it especially i mean the basics for that are all that stuff when it comes to your um, uh, your muscle structure, which type of muscle fibers you use. And if you are, for example, a passionate marathon runner, then you have to do it on your slow endurance fibers and not on your fast fibers, which lead you to a fast 100-meter sprint. And if you are... Whether it so depending on whatever you did before, you did that with a certain amount of training. Otherwise, you couldn't be a professional triathlete. And every time it comes to also endurance and training, so several hours of training, then you have to use your type one fibers and the fibers which are based on all your on your, all your ox oxygen uptake, um, for example, and not the fibers which use mainly carbohydrates or even lactate as 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 the basic uh, energy fuel, and therefore the VLA max is normally pretty low, um, which does not mean that you can take that as a safe parameter. So you cannot say that VLA max is low, and therefore we cut off like 10 hours of bike training per week and just go for, uh, let's say, eight hours per week and do it all in a high-intensity way. Because in my opinion, you have to have certain amount uh, or hours amount of training in your normal bike training, same procedure for running. You cannot only say that VLMX is fine, running economy, good, and then you have to hire your VO2max with just two track sessions in a week. That doesn't work out. So you always have to have a certain amount of minimum training per week, which leads you to a secure VLMX, for example, which is also beneficial for your VO2max. And then you can decide whether you want to put ahead the last percentages of let's say intensity in training for example to hire the vo2 max from to say some numbers from 70 to 75 milliliters for example in vo2 max um, and in that case i think intensity is some kind of necessary to to have that in your training as just low intensity training doesn't make sense i think Maybe in cycling 30 years ago, you were a good pro cyclist if you just had low-intensity training. But by now, every professional athlete, whether it comes to cycling and triathlon, is aware that he has to bring some intensities into training to bring his VO2 max on a level where you can say that it that is not only based on like low-intensity training, but that you also put some input into your physiology due to or with intensities which highs your vo2 max and brings it on a on a certain level where you want to have that mm. and you talked about uh of course you can maybe do some 
uh, really high intensities above threshold but you also mentioned that in some cases maybe you're using threshold intensity even though the focus might be vo2 max can you uh, explain that a little bit more is it uh, is, is that the case that you don't always have to go and do those typical vo2 max workouts yeah yeah um so when you want to train your vo2 max oxygen uptake and the amount of oxygen uptake let's say per minute per hour per training week per training block whatever you have is important the more you have the better so and your your body adapts due to the impact you give him when it comes to the rate of metabolic uh, or oxygen uptake and there therefore to adapt the metabolism to learn that mitochondria biogenesis and so on is working better than before let's say to make it easy and what you put into is not the first question at first it's the amount of so therefore you have to have some duration and 10 hours of training is double the duration of five hours training therefore double the amount of oxygen uptake you have which makes sense therefore you are not able to cut off the hours in training and put high intensity into because if you just do it easy and calculate on your own um, how much more oxygen you can uptake due to the intensity, then you always have to keep in mind that especially when it comes to high intensity, it's not really a big amount of training. So if you do, for example, like let's say we do a high intensity uh, workout where you have like 30 seconds of 130% of your uh, threshold or let's say at a hundred percent of your vo2 max which is really intensive and you do it 30 seconds then 30 seconds a break and then you uh, repeat that like eight times ten times which is a great session in my opinion for every uh, cyclist which can also be a great session for every age group athlete which just a limited number of of hours of bike training per week but if you take into account that we just talk about 30 seconds and maybe like 10 times in a row, then we have like 300 seconds of high intensity. And if you calculate how many oxygen uptake that means, it's not as big as it feels when you do like 10 times uh, the 30 seconds, for example. For sure, you have some beneficial side effects when it comes to all your cardiopulmonary system, for example, which totally makes sense. But the problem I see when it comes to high-intensity training is that compared to the normal other training you have on your bike and also compared to the other disciplines, you always have to have in mind the whole stress, manage, uh, stress management for your athlete as a coach. And for me, it makes way more sense to have intensities which are a one level a two level so like which is normal endurance level like 60 70 80 percent of your threshold and then threshold level so 100 percent of your ftp maybe slightly above like 105 110 percent and if you take that intensity you have the benefit that you are not really talking about bringing your anaerobic system into running at a high level because at threshold level for sure you pr produce a little bit of lactate um, but not really like a lot and it's not really like having the problem about um, whatever ph values not being balanced and so on when it comes to too much lactate in your muscular or 
maybe also in the blood, but uh, muscular first. And therefore, I'm a big fan to put in a certain amount of intensities, especially of threshold intensities. But I think due to the, especially in a professional triathlon, I'm not sure if there was a high intensity session for Cat, Boris, and Patrick within the last six months of training. So I'm, to be honest, pretty sure they didn't do any interval session where they were higher than threshold. So threshold, a lot. I would say in average, like every second or third workout, no matter if it's swimming, running or cycling, includes threshold intensities. And also intensities like whatever, four times eight minutes threshold. And if you, again, put on the calculation and think for yourself about what it means to have like 32 minutes of threshold intervals. And if you calculate the oxygen uptake you have for that three-hour session, then I'm pretty sure that on the one hand, for sure, you can have a higher oxygen uptake with high intensity. But the question always is how the athlete feels after that session and how many stress that was for him. Because if you do a normal threshold session, whether it comes to, to, to cycling or running, and if we take like, let's say, let's go to running. Uh, if you go for three times a thousand meters or four times, five times, then for sure that session is intensive. And for sure, you have to put a lot of effort in it. But if you have to go for a three hour easy bike ride after it, yeah, no problem at all. So, but if you have a very high intensity session on the track, for example, then the question is always, if you can still keep the quality for your bike ride after it, and if it's maybe not too much stress for the whole system, and if you are, as a coach, still able to handle that stress, because that's your job to do that. It's not the job of the athlete to, to do that, but it's your job to do that. And um, this is something where I'm totally... Um, safe when it comes to threshold intervals and all the intensities you have until that intensity but where i would never ever in a normal training block let's say put high intensity sessions in as i would not be safe when it comes to the stress management i'm i would not be sure if i can write down 30 hours in a training plan and add like three four five high intensity sessions into it and if the athlete is able to do that and to handle that stress. Yeah, well, uh, this is very interesting. And it's uh, I, I would say it's a, a great example of applying uh, sports science knowledge, but uh, it's something that you can't directly find necessarily in a study because we have hundreds of studies about the effectiveness of high-intensity interval training. And here, uh, here comes you with a sports science background and you're saying that, well, uh, somebody like Patrick or Kat has, hasn't done high intensity training in six months, basically. But I, I think it's it's just uh, fantastic how you yeah look at it from the the overall level of how much how much oxygen uptake you have on on a weekly level and a monthly level and so on. And I guess on the bike you could just directly measure it with with kilojoules almost. How how can you maximize the amount of kilojoules you perfect you put in? Perfect. Uh, that's why you have a power meter. Yeah. And that's a hundred percent with you. Um, that's a great parameter to measure also stress. I mean, when it comes to the normal parameters you would use normally for stress and you take like simple one, the training stress score, for example, then 
my words are always that the training, the training stress score is something which calculates several numbers, but which does not take into account whether you do your workout in the morning with or without breakfast. Did you have carbohydrates before or did you not have carbohydrates before? Did you have an intensive session on the day before where your carbohydrate stores are maybe slightly depleted? Or are you doing that session 100% recovered with two rest days before? And therefore, the training stress score is something which is a bit helpful, but shouldn't be a parameter, in my opinion, as a coach, especially not in professional uh, sports, because the amount of training you have and the differences in how you start that training session, so good sleep, bad sleep, carbohydrates yes or no uh, if we talk about women's sports are you into your cyclist by now in, and in which phase are you at which makes a big difference when it comes to training and same procedure for energy stores um, are you in the third week in a row where you had like 30 uh, hours of training or is it your third session after a week of, of of resting and recovery for example training stress score always the same depending on power output but stress for the athlete way different and therefore in my opinion um like you said uh kilojoule for example the the energy expenditure you have is a good solution to also track the stress for the athlete because I mean, it's a pretty direct parameter when it comes to tracking also the oxygen uptake. I mean, take into account that oxygen uptake is 100% linear until threshold, let's say, um, with your power output. And power output is, in cycling, 100% linear, more or less, to your energy expenditure because you can do nothing wrong in cycling. So you have to turn that crank by 30, uh, 360 degrees and best case, like what, whatever, like 90 times per minute. But the position is fixed. Your feet are fixed in the shoes. Your shoes are fixed on the pedal. Your butt is fixed on the saddle and so on. So therefore, the efficiency is the same principle all the time. So and if you then take the energy expenditure, power output, whatever, then oxygen uptake and energy expenditure are, let's say, slightly similar. For sure, not 100%. And if you add like high intensity, that doesn't work out anymore. But for, I would say, like 96% to say some kind of number to make it a bit clearer, 96% of your training volume and so on is describable with energy expenditure. And it works out pretty well. What you cannot do in cycling, for sure, is to describe training with, for example, kilometers. But if you take swimming or running, then in running, for example, you are not able to have like junk miles where you run like 8Ks without having a lot of or the normal uh, energy expenditure you have while running A1 endurance training zone, for example, in cycling. Yeah, for sure. You can have like whatever tailwind and going slightly downhill and then you're riding like 8Ks without any amount of energy expenditure. Or if you're riding on the TT bike, for sure, you can do like four kilometers more per hour without putting any more power output into. So therefore, kilometers do not count in training. Don't, I mean, yeah, you can for sure write them down or you can track them or whatever. 
that they are not really helpful. Same procedure for hours. If you cannot be safe that you just have an amount of, let's say, like 10% of junk miles, which means for me that you are lower than training zone A1, so like whatever, 60, 65, 70% of your threshold. And if you are lower due to normal traffic situations, fair enough, no problem. But if you are lower because you cannot continuously pace your training, then it's your problem and you're doing junk miles and not having a high efficiency in training. So therefore, it's up to you to make it better. And energy expenditure is way better in cycling than kilometers or hour could ever be. Got it. And one more follow-up question on this cycling topic, uh, going back to VO2 max and VLA max. Uh, so we mentioned, we talked about the pro professional triathlete situation, but what about age groupers? Let's say that it's still somebody who has at least two or three years of experience in triathlon, so not a complete beginner. But uh, is it more common, do you think, in age groupers that uh, that they might actually have to do some specific work for VLA max that it might be uh, not not that good from, from the start because they have lower training volume and so on? A perfect question, and I think we could make a podcast just for that question, to be honest. Because um, that's the experience I made. I mean, uh, you are not... You, you don't go into coaching business without any experience and I a good coach. You have to do that experience. And my experience in doing high intensity training, for example, it's not that I've never done that before. I did it quite often, to be honest. And if you would ask my cyclists within the last 10 years, which I trained, then they would, I don't know, maybe laugh about me saying that high intensity is not included into training because they made it very different experience when it comes to the cyclist when it comes to age group triathletes i would say it depends a little bit on the background you have um, and then especially on the amount of training you can do per week and what i mean with you can do per week is not about how many hours of free time you have but how many hours of training you can give your body and still be sure that he can adapt it and he still can recover well. So if you start as a rookie and have a half-time job, I mean, just on a white paper, yeah, for sure, you can do like 15 hours of training, but from zero to 15 hours would bring definitely a lot of problems to your body, whether it comes to passive structure or whatever, um, which won't lead you to a continuous um, uh, training uh, for the next months in, in a row. And therefore, I would say that if you have an athlete with experiences for, let's say, two, three years, like you said, he's done some mid-distances, his background, wherever that was, whether he was an amateur soccer player, basketball player, he did none, no sports at all or whatever. Um, and what normally happens the less sport you do or the more, let's say, high-intensive sports you do, the more type 2 uh, fibers you have in your muscles. The older you get, the more these type fibers switch to the 1 fibers. Women have more type 1 fi fibers than men um, normally. And if you do like two, three years of continuous training, let's say like, let's start at the bottom. So like four to eight hours per week which is, in my opinion, definitely enough to have 
a pretty good uh, good um a development for example for an olympic distance or something like that if you want to do a mid distance maybe i would say that six to eight hours can be enough to do a pretty good mid distance if you have enough quality in training so and when we come then again to vla max and vo2 max on the one side i would say that it is possible to add a high intensity session whether it comes to running or cycling um into your training when you train for like six to eight six to ten hours whatever and if due to the lower amount of training i would also see it as essential to add some kind of input in training which will lower your lactate production rate let's make an example you have to have a workout in a normal week where you start training without carbohydrates in the morning so the to be more concrete the the saturday workout uh, in the morning let's say like two hours bike ride or if you do it on the indoor trainers like one hour one and a half hour and that should be something where you have a good solution so we talk about a normal worker so a normal employee or whatever who has free time on saturday and sunday and therefore has the possibility to train in the morning without breakfast or without carbohydrates. Um, and therefore, that session should be something where you do not have carbohydrates before. If you do not have carbohydrates, your anaerobic metabolism is running slightly, let's say, slower or not that intensive because the macronutrient you have to have for that metabolism is missing. And therefore, your body is forced to bring some more energy out of fats and especially your own ones um, to, to generate the power output you have to have for that training session. So, and that is a session I would say you have to have as an age group athlete. And now you can adapt it to, it doesn't matter if it's like the Saturday morning training without carbohydrates on the bike or on the run. For sure, you can also go running two times a week in the morning without having carbohydrates for breakfast, for example. Lactate production rate is normally slightly lower in running than in cycling, especially due to not having the possibility to do junk miles. So therefore, you have to have a higher, a higher amount of volume normally. And um, therefore, I would maybe slightly recommend to do it, especially for the bike part. But all that stuff when it comes to periodization of carbohydrates, which I think is something that has to be in uh, at some point in every training plan for an age group athlete, um, is also possible not only with, let's say, having non-carbohydrates for breakfast on Saturday, but you can also have carbohydrates on Saturday morning for for breakfast and then have a three-hour bike ride put some threshold intervals in between and then maybe have a run after it and doesn't have to be a brick session or a transition or whatever but maybe having just a slightly amount of carbohydrates after the bike part and then doing a run in the afternoon with with low intensity maybe a slightly higher volume and you can be sure that after that bike ride of three hours with intensity um that your carbohydrate stores are not at 100%. So therefore, you can have the same effect whether it comes to uh, periodization of the normal nutrition for sure. But on the other hand, you can also have slightly the same effect due to 
the training you put into and the carbohydrates you expend while training and especially while training at high intensity. So that depends on your structure. Let's just a short example for a pro triathlon. You don't necessarily have to uh, cut off carbohydrates from the normal nutrition as the training amount per week is that high that the carbohydrate stores are definitely a hundred percent not a hundred percent filled for every session so therefore if you go one and a half hours swimming in the morning for four and a half k's and you have a little breakfast after it so then your carbohydrate store is not a hundred percent filled and if you go for a four hour bike ride the carbohydrates are there for the first one two hours but then you do a lot of Uh, fat metabolism training as the carbohydrate stores are slightly depleted and therefore you force the body to to use the fats for example all right yeah and uh, then finally let's talk about the the run a little bit so again give an overview and some some tips and highlights yeah running is i mean as i said that cycling is easy um running is a little bit more complex as You also have the same principles when it comes to physiology. So it's also about anaerobic, aerobic, that one lower, the other one higher. Perfect. But then it comes to the transfer of your physiology onto the street and the question about how efficient or economic you can do that. And running economy, so just to describe it out, out of the lab, is something where we measure running economy Uh, with uh, the question of how many oxygen uptake you need for a certain velocity. And the less oxygen uptake you need, the better it is. When you want to calculate um, running economy, you always have to take into account that you have to um, uh, put the, the, the resting metabolic rates off. So you for sure have a resting rate of oxygen uptake like we have by now while doing a podcast. And you have to get rid of that in the calculation because it makes a bigger impact on lower velocities as the amount of oxygen uptake is not that high as it would be as in, for example, like threshold intensity. And then you have to take into account the the sort of metabolism you are in um, while running that intensity. Uh, threshold, for example, threshold running would mean more or less like 100% carbohydrate uh, energy metabolism. Whereas pretty low intensities also means a lot of fat metabolism in that running. So therefore, fat metabolism means more oxygen uptake you need for that one, which could slightly mean that your running economy is worse at low intensities. Therefore, you have to uh, get rid of, of, of the metabolism ways in your calculation of running economy. And then statement at that moment. I would say that running economy is the most important parameter in professional triathlon. Because I would say that if you take the world-class athletes and we take the, let's say, Kona top 10, top 20, whatever, then I'm pretty sure that you won't find big differences between the VLA max values of all the athletes And I'm pretty sure you won't find too much differences in the VO2 max values. Um, but I'm pretty sure you'll find big differences in running economy. And in my opinion, that makes, uh, let's say, like not too pathetic, but the difference between winning and losing more or less. Um, but I think running economy is a big difference 
um, between all these, uh, even in professional athletes. And you have to have running economies in mind and you have to coach that as that is way more important than just doing a lot of volume or whatever. So take into account, what do you think? How many kilometers in average Patrick runs for a 236-46 marathon in Tulsa? Um, Last half I, a I, year. I, I, think, I think I heard that he very rarely went longer than, was it an hour 45 for his long runs or something? I think the, the longest run was like one and a half hours. And you would never ever hour. do a, a run longer than two hours when, when I coach you. Um, so that's the longest one I could ever I would ever do. Um, and that fact is interesting. And the other fact, which is, in my opinion, even more interesting is the amount of running kilometers per week, let's say in average, for sure, you have weeks where you are run running slightly over average, and then you have weeks where you have more or less like resting. And, uh, but if you take the average for the last half year, then I would say, so I didn't, uh, uh, analyze it for, for their podcast by now, but I would say it's about like, 50 to maximum 60 k's per week so really mm. maximum so mm. and i would say that if you ask the average pro triathlete so if you take an average over top 20 kona then i would be pretty sure that the average is way higher than 60 k's per week but running for sure comes from running kilometers count but quality is still something especially when it comes to running economy which is very, very important and makes the difference when it comes to whatever threshold or marathon running or whatever. So therefore, that parameter should be something, if you are doing a performance diagnostics for running, you have to find out or you have to, whatever, go to an institute which gives you your running economy well calculated with resting rates and so on, or not with resting rates and um, also excluded the metabolism state and so on because what you want to do is to train your running economy to use less uh, oxygen for a certain velocity as the potential you have from lowering your running economy is way higher than you could ever have it from hiring your vo2 max for example mm. so 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 you so you're saying that basically well when you're if you're not running as much you can do that running with slightly higher quality even when it's not necessarily intense but you're not you're not en ending up doing super slow uh, jogs but you're always kind of running with a similar form is that is that the principle that that you want to always have a similar form to your race pace Yeah, and but also to have intensities where especially your, um, let's say, passive, passive structure, whether it comes to ligaments and so on, gets more stiff, for example, which makes sense when it comes to running economy to have a certain stiffness um, for, for your foot and so on and your knee and your hip and so on. Then what is very important for running economy um, is not what you have in your legs or how stiff your ligaments are, but also about your upper body. So what, what I'm pretty sure is pretty different from Patrick's training, for example, is that he had a lot of input concerning athletic training. So what I would describe as like strength training with like a functional strength training where it comes to whatever your own body weight, kettlebells, uh, elastic bands and so on and so on um, especially in winter preparation where we put a lot of in effort 
into all that stuff of building up a stable upper body as that one helps you to have a very good running economy in the end. And therefore, the question about running economy, so if I should give like three tips how to make your running economy better, I could not answer that, to be honest, because you do not really know what really works. I mean, if you want to hire your VO2 max, yeah, I mean, do a certain amount of volume or put some intensities in and then it works. But if it comes to running economy, it can be like, for sure, a certain volume of training makes sense. Then different intensities definitely make sense as the impact in a threshold interval is higher than an, uh, with a low-intensity run. But then you could also have like plyometrics and training. So if you want to have higher impact, which you cannot afford due to running, then you maybe can add plyometrics in your training and get whatever, a place where you, you can do some some jumping Uh, movements um, to have the plyometric process you have in running with a higher impact due to the jumping part but it's also about like upper body training then it's also about like still being mobile in all especially for example in your hip i mean hip mobility is something which is pretty important when it comes to running economy And um, therefore, you have a certain amount of inputs you could have for running economy training. And to be honest, I'm not sure which was the key fact which led him to a fast marathon. So I don't know. It was a summary of all of that. I would do it for the next training period slightly in the same way. And then if you keep the kilometers on a continuous level and this is something which is very important in my opinion um, then that could work out pretty well but the continuous level is important because if if you talk to triathletes and you ask them about the running kilometers they run per week they always tell you about the high amounts of running kilometers then you hear numbers like 80 90 100 kilometers and maybe the without being uh How do you call it? So I don't want to say bad words, but if you take the old school athletes, let's say, without any negative wording in it, and if you would ask athletes like Andreas Relat, for example, famous German athlete, be sure that he would never ever call it a training week if it's if the running kilometers are lower than 100 Ks, for example, which is something which was a proper training method for sure some years ago. And I would say that you definitely have athletes where you need these 100Ks per week to have good performance outputs. But if that is not necessary and you can have a summary of different inputs in training to have a perfect running economy and therefore a good marathon, then for sure I would definitely more likely take the 60 or 50Ks per week than the 100Ks per week as And then again, we talk about stress management and so on. 50K, 60K, no problem at all. I mean, these are like maximum four runs per week and then you have the 60K. So mm. not a problem at all. And um, that's pretty great when it comes to the whole stress management. So after the tools of preparation, I'm pretty sure that Patrick at the moment is pretty well recovered already and that he did not have to have a lot of effort into the preparation for these for the for that Ironman, but that he can 
handle that definitely twice a, ye a year to, to to put that input into training for a training block for an Ironman for sure. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. And with those, let's say, four runs per week, what would the structure be? Would you have a couple of more intense runs? and Or yeah, can you describe that a little bit for just a, an example? So the normal, let's say, low intensity run at about like 60-70% of your threshold maximum once a week i would say so that's what happens by now yep because um i think if you have a look on my training plans you'll the 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 workouts you have where there's not real program into it so where it's just an a1 endurance run at 65 percent of, of your thresholds are pretty raw so that doesn't happen pretty often and therefore you'll more or less always have different intensities at to to stay at the percentage with 65 for sure warm up and so on 65% but then also maybe like 80% of threshold for like let's say three times 5 minutes three times 10 minutes maybe when it comes to uh when you are slightly near the the race then you do it with different intensities which is like race pace 10% up race pace, 10% lower than race pace, and you do that like three times 15 minutes or whatever. But when it comes to just physiological training in the months before the race, then I would say that intensity training or threshold intensities in training, let's say, is something which I would add once a week, more or less, maybe like twice a week. But you can also combine that. I mean, I think it's not necessary to divide the workouts into intensity, then the other one high intensity, then the other one low intensity. You can also have a run about an hour where you add like two, three times 800 meters threshold training and then have the rest easy. Is that really an intensive run? I would say yeah, more or less. I mean, it's good to run 800 meters pretty fast for running economy to getting out of the comfort zone and so on fine also hiring your vo2 max makes sense but still not that intensive as you have to take it really into account when it comes to stress management so it's just a normal training workout and um, therefore i think there's a lot of there are a lot of workouts which are somewhere let's say in between so not easy but also not high intensive and therefore somewhere in that area and then it yeah it depends on which phases we are in training so let's take boris for example as an athlete who has not the running performance uh, capability like patrick for example he needs more kilometers he's doing more track sessions as he needs more intervals to getting running economy lower for patrick to run a half marathon in in an hour and 10 or 11 minutes like Gran canaria or poland last year for example I think we did like, let's say, five to 10 sessions, which I would really say that these sessions were intensive or high intensive on the way to that competition. And not in the last two weeks, but in the last like two, three months. So maximum once a week, if you would say it an average. But then it's more like we have a three-week training camp and we do it like four or five times. Go on the track, have like 800 meter intervals, but also like 400 meter intervals, for example. 
something like that. So it always depends on the situation where you are at and it always depends on the athlete whether he needs it more often or on the other hand he doesn't he, he shouldn't have it too often because otherwise I mean you don't want to have him uh with too much stress in training if he does not need it to run fast. So I can't tell you if it's possible for him to run a marathon in two hours, let's say like 35 minutes low. Because I'm not sure. By now, and that what was really the my to be honest, my my main goal in Tulsa was to have some kind of proof of concept and if that training which I wrote down for one and a half years <clears throat> worked sorry to run fast and that worked out but to be honest I cannot tell you if it's possible to run a marathon in 235 or 234 I mean we have to figure that out for sure there's a lot of potential in training <clears throat> when it comes to running volume and so on and so on but I'm not sure and therefore that's what you have to do as a coach Yeah, try to prove your own concept, make the experience if that one works, and and then on race day just hope that it works. So and do your very best to to support him in the race. Yeah, and and one final question, follow up question on the run uh, is: so we bringing it back to economy. Um, would you recommend that people, even even amateur triathletes, should uh, go to a lab and would with the right the, with with a good measurement and good calculations of economy and test their economy is that beneficial to, to actually know the actual numbers or is it more about knowing the principles that we talked about now the different things you can do that potentially improve economy so i'm a pretty bad businessman by now because um, our institute earns money with performance diagnostics um, and coachings but to be honest if you are more or less a rookie for example or if you did your first Olympic distance last year and this year you want to whatever make it faster you picked out your first mid distance you want to do or whatever and you want to improve your running performance then I'm a hundred percent sure that the balance between input and training and then adapting and recovery if that is in balance and you have a continuous amount of running kilometers, it works at first pretty well. And you don't have to be, do a performance diagnostics, um, especially if you are still able to hire the running kilometers, for example, per week. So if you are fine as a rookie running like, let's say 10, 15, maybe maximum 20Ks per, per week, and if you hire that to 25, 30, continuously easy, still enough time to recover and so on, and that works pretty well without any uh, bad habits, without any injuries, without feeling bad and so on, then it makes totally sense just to hire the kilometers. And you can do that until you achieve a point where you realize that you do not really have the chance to hire the kilometers anymore. Because I would say as an age group athlete, like 40, 50 Ks per week is really a high amount of training kilometers for running. And then you have to bring some quality in. And the quality is something which where a performance diagnostics can help you. The quality is something where, in my opinion, if you want to have a high quality in training, then you have to have a coach, to be honest. Um, 
because there has to be someone having in mind if you really are recovered well, if you really run continuously, or if you just think that you run continuously. And running continuously means average kilometers I'm talking about per month overall, not like in the two weeks where you are running while you are resting the other two weeks because the running kilometers were too hard and you had to recover more due to whatever issues you had, for example. And therefore, I would say... On, on the first hand, it's easy to hire the kilometers, maybe hire the training hours and so on. And if you have, and, and you definitely will improve in your performance, um, uh, capability and so on. And at some point you'll reach the, yeah, let's say the point where you realize that training on your own is fine to stay on the same level and you have to put these, let's say, 12 hours overall or like 50 running kilometers into training to stay on that level. And if you achieve that point, then that's a great point where you should think out of the box, out of your personal box, let's say, and where you should think of whether it makes sense to do a performance diagnostic, whether it makes sense to work with a coach and so on. And but not at first hand. So not really necessary. Just try to be honest to write down the kilometers, go from 20 to 25 to 30 and the next block after a resting period to 25, 30, 35, and then see how it goes. And the continuous level of running kilometers will definitely help to improve. And it's that simple at on the first hand. All right. Well, I have a lot more questions that I would like to ask, but we're running quite long already. So uh, maybe we'll save that for perhaps another discussion later on. However um, you want. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm totally fine. Yeah. So let's let's go into the rapid fire questions now. So take just one sentence to answer these. And <laughs> the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? Well, that's a... I could name so many books. Um, it has to be scientific. I'm not into practical stuff. Um, and when it comes to scientific things, most important book I had while studying sports science was, uh, Louise Burke, a book about nutrition science in endurance sports. I'm not sure about the right title, but if you Google Louise Burke, our uh, professor, Dr. Louise Burke, to say it correct, um, a book about nutrition in exercise best book overall and if you were want to learn about macronutrients micronutrients caffeine and so on then that's the literature i would highly recommend yeah and just a note uh for the listeners that louise burke is a past guest on the podcast so you can oh. find her episode i didn't well. know that so that was that's great i i have to hear that session perfect yeah. she's, she's i really also great. recommend her husband john hawley has been on same uh, procedure for sure yeah for sure uh next Absolutely one what's your idols What's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Uh, for my own or for my athletes? It's up to you to interpret it as however for, you want. For my own, my road bike. Um, I do not really have time to, let's say, train. But um, if I have some free time, like after Tulsa, and now we have like two, three uh, weeks going easy, it's still great to get out, have the road bike, also have the power meter i cannot get rid of that one even if it is not really fun to look on it if i see the power data on my own to be honest but it's still fun 
to ride outside my bike without any training plans just to have fun and go from A to B and have like some kilometers good weather and therefore I would say road bike is my my tool number one great and uh, finally what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success uh to do whatever you want and to have fun so it's only about i so sports were my was my hobby when i was a child now i can do it as a whatever professional coach or i don't know just as my profession and to have fun in your job and i don't want to call it a job because it's still a Yeah, it's the fun part in life. And if you have fun, then it's the best thing you can have in life. I could never ever imagine doing a job which wouldn't bring me fun. So no matter about how many money you could earn or whatever, it's just about the fun part. Yeah, well, Bjorn, I've had a lot of fun in this uh, interview. I've learned a lot. This has been really great. Uh, so uh, so really, thank you for for all the information you shared. Uh, where can listeners find you, your coaching business, uh, website, social media, and so on? It's on uh, highsize.de, which is spelled like H-Epsilon-C, Epsilon-S. So high size is our wording for that. Uh, plus de we also have a podcast but it's just for german speaking sorry for that one which is the junk miles podcast which you can find on spotify and so on but if you go on highsize.de then you can definitely find some information about coaching and performance diagnostics bike fittings and so on great and i'll link to that in the show notes for the episode thanks a lot all right well thank you so much bjorn uh, it was thank great you. to talk to you hope to catch up with you soon perfect thanks for your time Bye bye I hope you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where we'll link to Bjorn's personal Instagram and Twitter profiles as well as his coaching business website and Instagram. On Thursday, we have another TTS Thursday episode coming out. And then next Monday, I interview Dr. Richard Blagro, who is an expert in both academic and field settings in strength and conditioning for endurance runners in particular, middle and long distance runners. But we talk about it from a triathlon and general endurance sports perspective in that interview. So stay tuned for that. Richard is a wealth of knowledge and uh, I love to have he, had, he has such a wealth of knowledge both from the theoretical and academic side, but also uh, from the practical side by being a strength and conditioning coach of elite runners and runners at the highest level, but also regular age group athletes. If you're interested in going faster in your next triathlon race, do consider getting a coach or a training plan. You can check out our offerings on scientifictriathlon.com. Uh, we are very happy to help you out if you feel that, if you think that we can, we can help you achieve your triathlon goals, whatever they may be. And finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and get a free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race and get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.